and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. We're going to be talking about spraying in your shelter belts on today's program. But we're also taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD or by email radio at agphd.com. Brian, getting a lot of questions about soybeans emerging before pre's got put on. And I know we're going to talk shelter belts today, but uh, that's that's a big problem. If you got beans getting out of the ground, because we're going to lose a lot of those really good options for pre-emerge herbicides. Yeah, it's the number one thing I've been stressing to farmers and agronomists lately is um, you got to put all other jobs aside and you got to get those pre sprayed. If your beans are about to come out of the ground, there's nothing that is more important than getting the beans sprayed because you'll, you'll lose trifluralin or prowl. I, I mean, trifluralin, obviously, you've already lost it if you planted the beans, uh, but you definitely lose prowl if you're in the south. In the north, you've already lost prowl, too. So, I, I mean, prowl needs to be done pre-plant in the northern United States. And then metribuzin, valor, authority, you lose all those once those beans pop out of the ground, or for that matter, even when they're cracking the soil. So I, I just say you really want to make sure that you are putting that above all else. So anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a really big deal. Now, granted, there are products that you can use for residual post-emerge. I, I mean, personally, on our farm, I think we're going to be using Warrant Ultra, might be using Anthem Max. I mean, those are great things. Get two modes of action that have residual. And so that's nice, but it's not as, it's not as good as uh, what we're talking about with the three pre's that we always discuss on the show. You know, in corn, it's a little bit different. A lot of those pre's can go post, but not all of them. I, I know verdict is one that I've heard a few guys say, you know what, I didn't get my verdict on, so now I'm going to have to switch out to something else. I don't know if I'm really missing anything else. Is there anything else you'd be concerned about going post that's a normal pre getting used in corn? Nope. Uh, it's Well, it's anything with sharpen. So, yeah, anything containing sharpen. Otherwise, no, I can't really think of anything. We used to say balance flex. Yeah. Even balance flex now, if it's just with Roundup or Atrazine, you could go real early post up to, like, V2. Yeah, yeah, that's the other one. And... You know, don't don't have as much of that anymore. But but the verdict is is certainly something to to watch out for. And you know, the other thing too is guys are starting to see some of the volunteer alfalfa popping up in crops. And I I did get a couple of questions around volunteer alfalfa the last couple of days with status and five ounces. What's your feeling on that? I in the past guys have used a a pint of clarity and done an okay job burning it back. What do you think about five ounces of status and maybe you got something else you like better? Most people don't want to spend the money on that. When I mean, when you start talking $20 an acre, a lot of people shy away. So, yeah, that's outstanding. That would be the, my number one choice. But otherwise, that Camba at a pint is fine. It's just that, you know, a lot of these products that contain Stinger uh, or, I, I mean, HPPD, they're they're not, they're just not perfect. I mean, they'll, they'll burn it back to some degree, but it's not going to be great. Like if you were using status. So yeah, if you've got some alfalfa out there, the key thing is to spray as quickly as possible, get it before the alfalfa gets any bigger and at least get it burned back. Now Roundup is, as long as it's not Roundup ready alfalfa, Roundup is pretty good on volunteer alfalfa as well. You just have to use a pretty strong rate. Yeah. In crop that can be problematic though. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're limited on, I mean, depending on the crop, 44 ounces is the most, or I guess it would be now 40 ounces, um, roughly, uh, of, uh, of the three. new formulation of PowerMax. Yeah, PowerMax 3. Otherwise, in corn, you can't even go that much. So, yep, got to be a little bit careful about the rate. But here again, I mean, that's at least going to burn it back. Uh, should kill it in most cases if the weather's good. That's a big key with spring spraying is you just want the weather to be warm a couple days before and a couple days after you spray, and obviously the day that you spray. So you have those good growing conditions, then you should be in pretty good shape. All right, Brian, we're going to talk shelter belts on the show today. If I could dive into an Ag PhD mailbag question, though, I had a fertility one I thought you might want to answer. It's the mailbag! All right, this one comes in from Rick, and he said, Guys, uh, I've heard you guys talk about boron on the show and looked at my soil test, and wouldn't you know it, my parts per million is 0.4. <laughs> what do you do in crop, and if I could turn back the clock, what would you do in the fall or early spring if you had low boron like this? Where's it at? How heavy is the ground? How much rainfall do you get? Those are the three questions. So let's put it this way. On our farm, where we get almost no rain, have super heavy soil, frozen for half the year, we go dry boron in the fall. Works great. We've got so much calcium in the soil. We can put on pounds of boron over time, and it doesn't hurt anything. But if, let's say, you had really light soil, then you can only put a little bit out in advance. And, I mean, yes, you can use some dry, but you really have to limit that. We usually look at what the calcium number is, divide that by a thousand. That's as much boron as your soil can really handle safely. In crop, lots of ways to do it. You can go with uh, side dress. You can do a little bit of foliar feeding if you're keeping the rate low. Um, so, I, I mean, there's some guys that literally every application they make, they will throw some boron out there. If you're irrigating, you can put a little bit of boron in through the irrigation water all the time. That's one of my favorite things. So lots of ways to do it. Just depends on your situation. All right. Thanks for the question. Yeah, with with boron too, there's just a wide difference in how much you're going to have to pay for it depending on the product. So I know we get a lot of a lot of those kinds of questions. Of what's the cheapest way I can do it? And dry boron seems to be the cheapest. What's the most expensive way to do it? Well, in crop, and then of course. Uh, if you're really short, you need a little bit of boron all the way through the season. It's very important for that plant. And everybody talks about pollination time, but you need a little bit of boron all the way through. So having some out there early is, is certainly a good thing. That's why we've had such success putting some in the soil so our plants can access it throughout the season. And, of course, if you want to do some foliar feeding, like Brian was saying, if you got lighter soils or heavy rainfall areas, it's a little more expensive, but you certainly can get it into the plant. All right, we're going to talk about spraying shelter belts today. Don't normally talk about boron in shelter belts, but we'll talk about insects and other problems. Coming up right after this. Stay tuned. Back with multi-year proven results, Torque drives performance. Unique to other biologicals, Torque can be applied with other chemistries. Use in furrow or side dress to increase mycorrhizal associations, enhancing root development. Learn more about Torque at thinkbiological.com or contact your local retailer and ask for Torque today. Novozymes BioAg. Think Biological. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. 
with three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab. It's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Hi, I'm Greg Souter with 360 Yield Center. Getting more nitrates into the corn plant drives yields higher. When and where you place your nitrogen makes a big difference in packing nitrates into the ear. 360 Y-Drop places in right over the roots. It's the most efficient way to move nitrates into the plant for better tip fill and heavier kernels. Convert your side dress bar to 360 Y-Drop. Learn more at 360yieldcenter.com. Where else? What can we do for you? Yeah, I'm looking for some nitrogen. All right, we're running low and it's awful pricey, but uh, let me check. Hold. The answer to low supply and high prices for nitrogen is Invita, a microbe with systemic nitrogen fixation. Invita works throughout the foliage and roots, providing a right place, right time source of nitrogen to maximize yield in corn, wheat, and soybeans. Yeah, we're all out, but... You know what? I'll take some of that Invita. <laughs> That's what I was going to recommend. Book your Invita while supplies last. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. And, you know, it's interesting in the middle of planting season on some farms or the end of planting season on others, you start thinking about some of those other things that you're going to have to do this year. And I, I think about spraying lawns and spraying pastures and, and dealing with uh, problems potentially in roadside ditches and non-crop areas, those kinds of things. And then I think about our trees. And I know on our farm we've seen a number of different in issues with mites, with insects, um, occasionally, especially in new shelter belts, we end up with some weeds that uh, start running amok out in those shelter belts. And so we thought today would be a good time as, as you may be thinking about this, or maybe in the next couple of weeks here, you may be thinking about this around your farm or acreage, spraying something in the shelter belts for some of those challenges. I uh, got Peter Kolb with us right now with Montana State University, who happens to be a forestry specialist. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. All right, I know there's it, we've got listeners uh, really all across North America, and the the types of trees and shrubs that they're going to have are going to vary just a little bit, of course. But what would be some things if you said I'm going to go out and assess trees and shrubs and, and bushes around an acreage or a, a farm site? What would be some of the things you'd be looking for just to determine the health of those those trees? Well, this time of year, um, especially in Montana, everything is leafing out for the first time. So it's a good time to assess whether there's been any wind or winter damage, what we call uh, winter burn. Uh, so dead branches, uh, trees or shrubs that are not leafing out, uh, that might have frozen out, or we've had three years of drought and grasshopper plague the last three years here across Montana. So those might have had some negative impacts on your trees and shrubs. So Right now, I'd be looking at, uh, are there any trees I need to prune up, take out the dead branches? Uh, are there any trees or shrubs that I need to remove and replace? Now, when you talk about pruning, I, I had heard this 
when I was younger, my dad had my brother and me doing a lot of different jobs around the acreage. And one of the things that he would have us do is prune prune away some dead branches on trees or, or branches that were just a problem alongside the driveway or wherever. And uh, his his idea was always we had to do it early in the spring or later in the fall. Is there a right time to do it and a wrong time to do it? And if so, what what are those times? Well, pruning for health, you want to do before the trees leaf out. So for in Montana, that would be March or April. Um, but when you're pruning for health, that's when you're looking where there's dead branches, um, insects or disease issues that have popped up. Uh, then actually, um, the dead material or disease stuff you can take out any time. But middle of summer is usually a good time to do it, so July. Uh, because pruning cuts, uh, you're going to want to prune. If it's a whole dead branch, you want to prune it back to the main stem. Uh, you want those cuts to have some healing time before winter sets in. Otherwise, if you just do it late in the fall, those cuts will freeze dry all winter long, and you can get bigger injury. So uh, making cuts middle of July is uh, will give those wounds a little bit of time to compartmentalize, compartmentalize and allow the tree to seal off that injury. Interesting. Okay. Uh I've got some new plants, and I know a lot of times we'll talk to farmers and they'll say, I'm trying to refresh my shelter bell, and I've got some new trees that I've put on the outside. And like you mentioned, you just came through a drought. We we have, well, we hope we're on the backside of the drought here too. Uh, but watering trees, it gets to be a challenge. I see, I see people make a mistake where they've got grass they're trying to water and also trees. They take different amounts of, of water and, and in a little different way. How do you recommend watering a tree to get it started? Well, uh, first off is weed and grass control. So if you're planting new tree seedlings, they have a pretty diminutive root system compared to something that's growing naturally. And any grass or other vegetation around that tree will rob the moisture from it and basically kill it. So step one, you have to control the grasses and the weeds and, you know, at, at least three feet around. Uh, but here in Montana, where we're really dry, uh, really recommend at least a 10-foot wide strip uh, that you're planting into on that windbreaker shelter belt that has been tilled and all the grasses and weeds have been killed Uh using the combination of something like Roundup and then a pre-emergent herbicide uh, like Casseron uh, that will kill germinating seeds. Roundup plus Casseron. Okay, got that. Uh, you know, with with trees, too, one of the things that we've been concerned about here is mites, and we've had some mite issues. Is this something where treatment is advised in all cases, or is this something where we're hoping the natural uh, enemies of those mites take care of the problem for us? Well, usually, again, in a windbreaker shelter belt, you're planting trees where they don't naturally occur. Um, and you're sometimes planting exotics or something that's a little bit off-site. So mites, and I'll include aphids into that as well, in that same category, can be really problematic because uh, the natural pests uh, or natural controls probably won't do the job, especially if you have a, a se severe infestation. And even if you have an exotic species uh, that you're planting into your windbreaker shelter belt. So that's where you'd want to use uh, a combination of different insecticides. Um, you can use uh, uh, a horticultural oil that asphyxiates them, but it's not full control. But here's the trick. Um, when you're using insecticides, this is also the time when all the birds are nesting. 
and windbreaks and shelter belts are oases for neotropical birds that migrate in. And those insecticides are really, really bad on the, the baby birds. And also if you have game birds that are nesting in your windbreak or shelter belt. So kind of try and put off doing an insecticide until the end of June, beginning of July, when those birds have uh, flown the coop, so to speak. Um, so, you know, we want to be sensitive that windbreaks and shelter belts are serve a lot of purposes other than just protecting your homestead from the wind or your livestock. Uh, they are uh, wildlife uh, centers, uh, if you will. Um, so if you see a problem right now, then a dormant oil spray would be a better thing to do right now, uh, springtime when everything is nesting. And then midsummer, you're going to want to use a combination of different insecticides because aphids and mites will reproduce asexually. So if you have one out of a million that survives your insecticide, it will develop resistance and develop a resistant population. And that's why you want to rotate insecticides that you use. Oh, great tip there. Yeah, that's... That's really interesting. The timing is important. I know a lot of times we, we are very cautious about mowing a, a ditch or something like that. And if you really need the grass, hey, it's hard to wait sometimes. But we think about hatching right. birds and those types of things and, and wait. So it makes sense to watch out for the hatching birds and the trees as well. How about in Montana right now, Peter? What are the big forestry issues happening there? And, and what are some of the things that, that people could do to be involved? Well, but the big uh, issue in both forests and windbreaks and shelter belts is, of course, wildfire. So we are having have had a series of hot, dry summers, and really the last 30 years, uh, we're kind of in a in a warm trend uh, for the western state in what's called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. Uh, so summer drought. Um, so in windbreaks and shelter belts, you get an accumulation of dry matter, uh, blowing weeds, things like that, collecting your windbreak or shelter belt. And range fires are very, very fast moving. So, you know, they, there's some that have been clocked moving at 80 miles an hour. So if your windbreaker shelter belt is full of a lot of dead wood, dead material, and accumulated weeds, uh, it's at great risk from a wildfire. And, of course, the western Montana in, the, in our forested region, uh, same issue, uh, fuel accumulations. Um, you know, we've been a little bit, uh, well, a lot bit hampered the last 30, 40 years by a lot of litigation on federal management, including fuels removal. Uh, so private landowners are doing a real bang-up job in, in thinning their forests, removing fuels and things like that. Our federal partners are trying, but they're just being sued to death by all of the lawsuits. Uh, anytime they want to do anything on national forest, um, there's a lawsuit that you can't do it. So that's that's an issue. Yeah, that is a that's a tough one, and not one that not one that we're probably going to solve here today. But Peter, I appreciate you bringing that one up, and certainly something to be very aware of. I know we've seen lots of fires here in, in this region too over the last few years of drought. Uh, we're talking with Peter. well, you know, our 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 land managers, whether they're forest landowners or agricultural producers, are our number one citizens. I mean, they they do a lot of hard work. They do great stuff, good conservation, and so they're they're an example of what works. Peter Cole with Montana State, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We'll talk more about spraying and shelter belts and answering your agronomic questions coming up right after this. The hardworking, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example 
Talk openly and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. This whole midnight ride thing is getting real. What HPPD resistant weeds are coming? We've got verdict herbicide. Verdict herbicide? Yeah, it's a non HPPD corn pre herbicide from BASF. Well, well then, get some sleep. Yeah, will do. The weeds are coming! Switch to verdict herbicide! Always read and follow label directions! It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. At AgPhD, we're always looking for ways to support the ag industry. That's why at our free AgPhD Scouting and Scholarships event, we're giving away more than 100 college scholarships. Plus, we'll head out into the field for hands-on agronomy sessions, including our comprehensive guide to crop scouting. This day may be geared towards younger farmers, but whether you're a college student or just want good agronomy info, this is one event you won't want to miss. Learn more and register for the AgPhD Scouting and Scholarships event at agphd.com. Learn on the job with the CNB Apprenticeship Program. Through in-person training and on-the-job experience, this unique opportunity gives you the chance to learn advanced ag diesel technology without the traditional technical school format or expense. Learn more at cbequipment.com careers. From machine storage buildings and farm shops to dependable buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit mortonbuildings.com. My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car? Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out caseih.com. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Talking about shelter belt management on today's program. We're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD or you can email us radio at agphd.com. Got Sam Kizar with us right now. He's an arborist in South Dakota. Sam, how you doing? Hey, Darren. Doing well. All right, we're talking about trees today, Sam, and I've gotten to walk around some of our own trees with you, and and you've pointed out some issues that we've had and some things we've needed to manage, and we certainly know that we're not the experts on trees, but you are. So what are some of the things that that you would say homeowners and uh, uh, people interested in protecting trees should be looking at and dealing with this spring? Well, uh, I'm sure everybody's aware of all the rabbit damage that happened over the winter. Um, so if you did have rabbit damage trying to, 
trying to take care of that. Sometimes Mother Nature wins. I lost four big fruit trees myself because just got a lot of snow. What are you going to do about that? Yeah, uh, it, it was interesting. One of my trees, Sam, at my house, there, there, I saw a hole like leading into the tree, and the the rabbits had found this great safety zone of of hanging out around that tree. They had a nice little hole dug right around it through the yeah. through the snow. Yeah, when they get hungry like that, I think it was just that perfect storm of not any food coming into the fall and them and all that snow, and they were starving. And I saw rabbit damage on plants I've never seen rabbit damage on before. So it was they were definitely hungry, and I you know I think at the end of the day you just gotta gotta realize that we're we're out here on the prairie with a lot of uh, a lot of things that are usually not the greatest for trees. Um, so it's it, it can be a challenge. Yeah. What did you see as you go further north too? Do you do you happen to get back home uh, up in northern Minnesota very often? Do you see different things happening up there? Winter's a little different, little little more brutal even than what we face this year. Yeah, uh, I had I haven't gotten up there since you know since the thaw, um, but I know talking with my parents and, and my dad, it's it uh, there you know lots and lots of snow. Um, and whatnot, but I, yeah, I haven't seen any specific challenges, you know, so far this spring from that, but, um, yeah, it's, I, the, the, the good, I mean, I think across the board, the, the one thing that the trees are still going to be dealing with just, just, just like with everything else is the snow was wonderful from a moisture standpoint. Um, but here we are, uh, I got maybe an inch at my place the last couple of days, which will really help. But if this rain doesn't continue, we're we're going to be right back into drought conditions, and it's gonna and it's going to be another year of significant stress on those plants. Yeah, I was talking about just a few little trees that I had planted, and it's one thing to to run a garden hose or carry buckets of water to a few trees, but to a whole shelter belt or or maybe a, a tree line that runs a quarter mile or a half a mile. It's yeah. not really something you can water. You kind of got to count on rain coming. Um, are, are there other things we could do to help? I know we talked about new trees a little bit earlier on the show that man, keeping a weed free zone around them. So you just don't have any competition for what little moisture there's yeah. going to be is a good idea. But, but for existing tree belts, is there anything else we can do? Uh, existing tree belt is kind of the same, you know, reducing, the biggest thing is reducing grass competition as much as you could. And I've always kind of, you know, uh, I've always thought about it. If, if, if we could figure out a great way in order to incorporate clover to grow in between all the rows of our trees and keep the grass out of there, uh, they would do a lot better because it just wouldn't have that competition with, with how aggressive grasses are with water and nutrients. Uh, but that's easier said than done with all the other broadleaves uh, especially the weedy ones that are out there. So um, it's, you know, the the biggest thing, and, and it doesn't helpful for the existing trees that are out there, but if, if at all possible, increasing diversity and sticking with, you know, not trying to get fancy with the, with the plantings. Um, stick with the trees that are, that are as close to native to our areas as possible is going to give you the best long-term success. I, I've, for example, planted quite a few, you know, conservation grade seedlings myself last year and only was able to water them twice, I think. And they all made it this spring. Um, wow. And so it's, it, it establishment isn't the most difficult if we're sticking with those tried and true plants versus trying 
you know, trying something new or, or searching for something a little bit different. I, th I think, you know, for shelter belts, especially if we can focus on functionality versus, you know, aesthetics, that's really what's going to get somebody the, the, the most length out of the, out of their shelter belts. Those are, those are great tips and, and it makes a lot of sense. Find the, find the plants that are native to the area. They're the ones that are going to survive year in and year out the best and be able to handle some of the extremes that we get. Um, one, one of the mm -hmm. things I was thinking about too, I know there's a lot of ash trees around in our area and, and yeah. the emerald ash borer has certainly been a big concern here and uh, across a broad, broad swath of North America. What are you seeing with the emerald ash borer? What are you learning now? We're years into this process, uh, are treatment methods working and, and what kind of management process would you have? Yeah, it's, well, step number one, I tell all my customers, you know, just come up with some type of plan. Um, the direct treatments that are out there, you know, for your urban trees, the trees that are up in your farmyard are, are really valuable for shade. The, the, the professional treatments are 99.9% .9 effective. They are very good at protecting those trees from emerald ash borer. Um, and I'm actually seeing in a lot of, a lot of trees in Sioux Falls that have been treated now, um, going on, uh, six years, I think now. Um, well, since 2018, however long that's been, um, the trees are actually getting healthier because now they have zero insect pressure um, because that insecticide we're putting into the trees not only protects them from emerald ash borer but all the other native bugs. Um, which is so that's kind of an interesting thing on that on that part. But if you've got shelter belts that are full of ash trees and you're worried about a process, the best thing I could, I could tell you is, you know, try and come up with some type of removal and replacement plan now rather than waiting for that inevitability. Because what we ha we do know within the industry is any untreated ash tree will succumb to this beetle at some point. Like there, there's no, maybe there's no, you might have a survivor tree or whatever. It's, it's pretty cut and dry given given that emerald ash borer is you know one of those larger beetles as far as those that attack trees that it it's really cut and dry that way it's either you got to protect them chemically or they're gonna they're gonna die at some point is there can you possibly time it right for foliar treatments or is is the the window that those emerald ash borer beetles are coming, it's just too wide a window to get with one foliar treatment. I, this probably a bit over my, my pay grade for answering this the most accurately. Um, but knowing like our native bronze birch borer, yes, you can foliar spray and, and, and keep the pressure off. But even that wasn't the most successful once systemic insecticides were kind of developed and started to becoming more popular you get far greater control that way and far greater protection i think with emerald ash borer i think in theory you possibly could foliar spray but i don't know how effective it really would be because we're talking about a non-native pest on on a native tree versus you know bronze birch borer being a native pest on a native tree so the tree has some natural defenses. Why this emerald ash borer is so bad for the, these these our native ash trees is our native ash trees have zero defense mechanism with it. So it's they they the, those insects get a hundred percent attack on the tree for the most part. Um, and so I again in theory maybe, but I I would be very very skeptical that it would actually work. Plus on top of that, you'd have to do it every year. 
yes. and not miss yes. a year. And, and be perfect with your timing every single time, yeah. which is about impossible. But like you say, yeah. if, you, if yeah. you really like a tree, these direct treatments have really worked. I know I've got a couple of ash trees at home that I just love and, and I don't want to replace them. And so we've been keeping them alive with the direct treatments. But you're right. On some of these shelter belts, we've got to be proactive. We know we're going to lose those trees and uh, it'd be better to take them out as we can and, and also to kind of slow the spread of that bug. Now we're talking with Sam Keyser yeah. here, and you can find more info from Sam. Uh, he's got a great website. It's aspenarbo.com, A-S-P-E-N-A-R-B-O.com. Sam, thanks for the time and the advice. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Darren. You bet. We'll talk more about shelter belts right after this. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Nothing but net. Win your soybean season with the fast knockdown and lasting broad spectrum control of Elevest Insect Control from FMC. Take on army worms, stink bugs, soybean loopers, and more with the maximized ratio of premier active ingredients for better overall control of more than 40 labeled pests. Visit your FMC retailer or elevest.ag.fmc.com to up your game this season. Always read and follow all label directions. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. You won't want to miss this year's Ag PhD Field Day with guided tours of our extensive research plots, world premieres of the latest ag technologies, the highest yielding farmers on the planet, and more equipment running than ever before. The Ag PhD Field Day just keeps getting bigger and better. We'll also have great family entertainment, including a kids' area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and food and drink available all throughout the day. But the best part is everything's free. Go to agphd.com to learn more for the Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 27th. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The end zone from Farm Shop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit FarmShopMFG.com for more.
Thanks for listening to Ag PhD Radio. Today we're talking about shelter belt management. And I know when you're sitting out in the planter and you're running through the field, just hanging out in the tractor cab all day, you might be thinking about some of these other things like, man, I should really do something about that shelter belt. And thought we'd give you a few ideas today of of some ways that you could manage things to improve your enjoyment, improve your protection around your farm place. Or even if you're just a homeowner and you say, no, I live in town, but I, I do have some trees and I really care about them. I want to do the best thing I can talking about that too. If you've got questions for us, you can email us radio at agphd.com or you can just give us a call at 844-44-AG-PHD. Really happy to have Randall James with us right now, uh, who's a certified arborist down in Kansas. How you doing today, Randall? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. All right. Uh, lots of lots of issues coming out of this year. It seemed like winter lasted forever in our part of the world, and and I know drought has been a challenge for a lot of folks here the last few years too. What are some of the issues you're seeing down in in Kansas with trees and bushes right now? Well, generally, I think uh, you know it just goes year to year. Similar things, uh, you know, specifically shelter belts and just trees and landscape for us we went in, in in the kansas area anyway we went in with the dry fall a dry winter uh cold snap quickly in december so they're dealing with a lot, a lot of dieback especially in the conifer like spruce pine those kind of plants have really taken a beating yeah yeah now one thing that that our last guest sam keezer was talking about and i know he's talked to me personally about this on our own farm he's like well you've got some of those conifers that are native to this area and others that you wanted to bring in darren because you thought they were pretty and they didn't survive (laughs) as well do you have the same thing there absolutely you know it's interesting you know back in uh kansas state university have recommendations for trees in our area and uh uh, at least in the conifers, most of those recommendations 20 years later didn't work out so great, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. They, you know, conifers, they, they, if, if it's not a native conifer, and I know that uh, juniper or red cedar sometimes is a dirty word, but that's, that's our tree, and that's, our, uh, that's the one that's the toughest, and most of the others really struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know one thing earlier, we had Peter Colbon from Montana State and he talked about diversity. And then uh, Sam Kizar said diversity. You've got to have a lot of different species out there. And that doesn't seem to be the trend. It seems like we want these nice straight rows of all the same tree. And I, I don't know where we went wrong on that, Randall, but is that a problem normally? Or is it, oh, no, that's no problem, Darren. Just maybe have different trees in each row and you'll be fine. Or do we need more diversity than that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think diversity is certainly important. Although, um, if, if we have a good tree that has a, you know, a longevity or at least a history of good success for the last 20 years or so, I think you're safe. Um, and, you know, it's not like you have to have five different species in your row, but uh, you know, obviously, uh, spreading that around would be good. But aesthetically, I, I'm the same way. I would rather have one row of the same thing, or maybe two rows of two two of the same thing. So, if they're if they're tried and true, um, obviously, it's it's not a silver bullet. But for the most part. If they're tried and true, uh, that's that's adequate from my perspective, anyway. What are some of the the issues that you have with disease and 
insects and mites that, that you're most concerned about on a year-to-year basis in Kansas? Well, one thing we have to re- remind ourselves is shelter belts, any tree that's not growing in its native setting is under stress. So, you know, think about uh, natural woodlands where they have, you know, they have their brother and sister tree beside them in a community and they have nutrient cycling going on. They're not really exposed to any, for the most part, any herbicides, pesticides, those kind of things. So they're, you know, they're just a lot happier and a lot able to, a lot more able to defend themselves because of their general health. And we put them in situations where we're cultivating the soil beside them or using herbicides and messing up the soil matrix in their root zone as we have to for our both lawns and for crops. So generally these are just stress-related things. Environmentally is 80% of the problem. Some of the pests that we deal with that are killers usually result from being stressed and then that includes boars. And most of these things you really can't do a lot about. Uh, The ones that we think about are the cosmetic pests like bagworms and those kind of things that really don't kill trees anyway. So as far as the uh, management of pests in the in the grouping, it's really a case by case, year by year situation. But helping them uh, to be healthy and not uh, predisposing them to stress is really the main issue. You know, we we've done a lot of different things uh, growing up on the farm. I know we had my when I was a kid, my dad had us plant a a bunch of rows of trees on different parts of the farm. And so my sister and my brother and I would be mowing grass or mowing off weeds or occasionally spraying if there was some terrible type of weed out there. What do you do in those tree rows? Is there a herbicide that's safer or that you have kind of as a go-to or a time of year that you like to do those things? Or do you just say, you know what, you just got to mow it off or or pull it by hand because we don't want to risk it around the trees? Yeah, I, uh, for the most part, yeah, any the you know avoiding herbicides or uh, chemical control in the root zone is is great, but sometimes it's just impractical. I get it. So I just I you know it's really the brush killer herbicides are the ones that are the most concerning. Dicamba, um, triclopyr, some of these that if you were to go into a hardware store and look for a brush killer, those are the chemicals that are going to be on the label. And those are the ones that are just most, um, the trees are most vulnerable. Uh, older trees, from my perspective anyway, the glyphosates, when you're trying to manage with Roundup, that does, that's, I'm not too concerned about that. Maybe in younger trees and like in nurseries, you have to be concerned. But that's probably a good uh, herbicide that when is used correctly, doesn't really um, hurt the trees that bad. We, we were talking to Peter Kolb about just cleaning out branches, cleaning out anything that could lead to more fires, and certainly Kansas has had its share of fires too. What do you recommend in the tree belts? Because I know as, as we look at farms, a lot of times that's where old equipment goes to die. It gets parked in, in trees yeah, or sure. things that we don't want to throw out. Well, I'll just put it in the trees. We might need that someday. Is that a problem or is that just more cosmetic? I, I would consider it more cosmetic, um, uh, depending on, I, I guess, uh, a sprayer would be different than an old cultivator or tractor, you know, but generally speaking, uh, deadwood, 
um, the branches that we have there, uh, other than the healing process, when a tree, when a branch dies and then it, it's left on the tree for a long period of time, it's it's kind of a highway for pathogens to get into the tree. So pruning is nice on dead wood so that that wound can heal and it can seal itself off. So that's a good thing to do. But when you have miles of trees, <laughs> I don't know how practical that is oftentimes. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. It's it's always a challenge, and I, I know a lot of times around the farm, it, it can get a little daunting. It's a big project, but we sure are thankful for a healthy tree belt around the farm just to protect us, especially coming out of this winter. Uh, we, we needed that protection, no doubt about it. Talk with Randall James, yeah. uh, certified arborist down in the state of Kansas. Randall, thank you so much. Really appreciate the advice today. It's good talking to you. All right, thanks for calling. Well, our topic today was, was shelter belts, and if you have questions, of course, you can always email us, radio at agphd.com, and our phone lines are open here at 844-44-AG-PHD. We're going to dive back into the Ag PhD mailbag as our show continues, so if you've got questions, go ahead and send those in. I got one from AM here. He said, you guys were talking about two-by-two placement with your fertilizer when you're seeding. Are you doing all those jobs at the same time? Yes, AM. Uh, planters are, are quite complicated machine pieces of machinery now, and they're they're doing multiple jobs at the same time. So yes, oftentimes we're putting fertilizer on each side of the row, putting seed in the furrow, possibly putting some treatment even in the furrow for insects or other things. So yeah, lots of things going on all in one pass. We'll be back right after this. Stay tuned. Get uniform control in your fields with trusted, hardworking Lucento fungicide. Control the toughest diseases with a dual-mode-of-action fungicide that consistently outperforms the competition and field trials. Lucento fungicide from FMC works overtime for lasting control to help improve crop yields. Talk about getting the job done. Visit your FMC retailer or lucento.ag.fmc.com for hard-working control in your fields. Always read and follow all label directions. Officer Jones calling for backup. 10-4, location? Graber back 40. Looks like we've got Palmer amaranth, kochia, some common water hemp. Resistant weeds. Copy that. You'll need a good tank mix partner. I'm sending tough 5UC. Come out with your hands up! Guys, we're surrounded. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belgian Crop Protection. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Nutrition N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. At Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support the ag industry. That's why at our free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event, we're giving away more than 100 college scholarships. Plus, we'll head out into the field for hands-on agronomy sessions, including our comprehensive guide to crop scouting. This day may be geared towards younger farmers, but whether you're a college student or just want good agronomy info, this is one event you won't want to miss. Learn more and register for the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event at agphd.com. 
Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Water Hemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trifold Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at trivoltinaction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time, taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can always email us, radio at agphd.com. All right. Uh, got a few questions here to get to, and, and I'll pull my brother Brian back into the conversation, and, and we can start chatting about that. Um as we, we look at some of the different things going on in agriculture, uh, one of them that we've been talking about a lot has been soil testing and had some feedback here from Devin, uh, who I think is in Minnesota. But he said, I, guys, I was listening to a podcast uh, from a university, and they were talking about soil test myths. And it sounds like they must have listened to your show because they're taking the exact opposite <laughs> approach to what you guys are. I'm just curious. I can give you a few examples of what they talked about, but why are sometimes universities in direct opposition to your advice and the advice of high yield farmers? All right, Brian, do you want to hear the uh, soil test myths that they pointed out? Well, yeah, we talked about this six months ago when it actually came out or maybe it was a year ago, uh, but take one at a time and then I can, explain why it there it's either misleading or it's incorrect go ahead all right uh first one malik three is a better test for farmers to use okay so it basically he's right in that um there's some people that like to take what we say and twist it a little bit and then just tell everybody we're wrong <laughs> so anyway we aren't out there saying, oh, Malik 3 is a better test. What we're saying is the Malik 3 test is half the price. And the one thing that is actually better is the manganese test. That's a legit manganese test. Whereas the DTPA manganese, that's really based on soil pH. So in other words, if you run a DTPA test for manganese, the higher your soil pH, the lower your manganese level, period. That's the only factor. So it's not, I don't, I just don't view that as a valid test. All the rest of the stuff, it's fine. It's just different than what the Malik 3 is, but there are conversions to go from one to the other. Big thing, the biggest thing I like, though, is we pull about 3,000 tests a year in our farm, and if I can save hmm, 10 to $15, it's like, okay, that's real serious money, and I feel the results are just as good. Okay, another myth. Uh, K-base saturation is a better way to predict potassium. 
I don't know exactly what they mean by predict potassium, but you have to look at two factors with potassium. It's pounds that you have in the, in the ground per acre, plus you got to look at base saturation. And the reason why base saturation is so important is because it's showing you the ratio of potassium to other nutrients. And if you don't have potassium in the right ratio, you just flat out are not going to get enough in the plant. And I have, we have tens of thousands of data points to prove that. So one of the challenges with the university system is they don't get the funding, I don't feel like, that they used to to run the research that they could to prove certain things, yes or no. And sometimes it just it takes a lot of years and stuff like that. So we've been really fortunate in private industry to be able to run some of these tests and even on our own farm. I mean, I can show you data off our farm from the last five years where we're comparing all these one-acre soil test grid points to yield. Well, it's pretty telling when I've got like 13,000 points of data and it shows me that, boy, if my potassium level in the base saturation test is 2%, I have a lot less yield than when it's at 4%. Now, I mean, I'm not that smart, but even I can figure that out that, you know what, I got to have more potassium there in order to make things good. Yeah, and I don't want to spend too much more time on that one, but one of the other ones was just, I need to run all the micronutrients on my soil test, and I just don't understand why people say you don't need the information. Even if you don't use it, having that information can be pretty helpful to see what's going on in the plant. So, yeah. Right, we do, you don't we, have to run it every single year. You don't have to run every test every year or anything like that, but, boy, it's so helpful, and we find that very few farmers are testing on a regular basis as it is, Get the micronutrients. It only costs a few more dollars, and sometimes that's the yield-limiting factor. Like with phosphorus to zinc and phosphorus to copper, I can show you that off our farm, too. If you don't have those things in ratio, then you're in trouble. You lose a bunch of yield. Well, we're in business in on the farm to try to make money and to try to make more yield. And, I, I mean, by having that data, it's made us more money on the farm. Yeah, Last plus. year was our best year ever on the farm, and part of the reason, a big part of the reason why, was it because of all this soil testing stuff that we're doing? Well, part of the thing, too, that I look at, Brian, that I think is going to come down the road is the nutrition that is in all the things that we're producing on the farm. And when when you see studies run, well, we're not getting enough of certain vitamins and certain nutrients, uh, it, it starts here. And many of those are micronutrients. Right. So why would we not manage those on our farms and have healthier livestock and better crops, too? So anyway, it's just kind of interesting. And, yeah, you can run all those things on your own farm and find out yourself, like you say, with one-acre grids now with yield monitors that are taking multiple uh, data points every acre you can see if these things pay or if they don't pay you don't need anybody else to tell you if you're paying attention okay right. uh, let me jump to another question here got this one from Tristan he said we're getting geared up to plant some late corn and I was planning on running 12 ounces of verdict a pint of 24d 22 ounces of roundup and a pint of MSO then post emerge, HPPD, Roundup again, a pound of atrazine, and a pint of MSO along with a fungicide. Uh, we've got winter annuals, mustards, and henbit, small-seeded broadleaves, and grasses. What do you think of these programs, and what would you change? So first program, okay, what so, he's going down with, yeah. Verdict, 2,4-D, Roundup, and MSO. Yeah, you gotta you gotta take that two four D out. That that absolutely can and possibly will hurt your your corn. I'd I'd be scared to death. Do not put two four D out in front of corn. No way, no how, never, ever, ever. If you wanna have a growth regulator out there, then just use that camba. That's way safer. 
So you throw dicamba out, it'll be a little bit better on weeds like koshik and, and smartweed anyway, and then you don't have that, that crop injury risk. Post-emerge, I'm wondering, why are we throwing that, the fungicide in so early? I, I, I mean, you, you can't. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Um, we've done a bunch of that on our farm. I, it's just well, it's or the I other way, Brian. Or the V five. Or the other way is why are you waiting to spray your post emerge herbicide so yeah. long? There you go. Yep. So that that's kind of where I was going. Is V five V six? Yes, we've had some results, and a lot of people have run half rate of fungicide, even so you're not spending much money. But the weeds could possibly be getting big on you if your pre isn't holding real well. You just kind of have to play that one by ear. So I, I really hate to make post-emerge recommendations without seeing what we have for weed issues. Yeah. I mean, once you see what, what things look like, then you make your decision and go from there. Well, I would say this, though, Brent. It's HPPD plus Roundup and MSO, but then adding a pound of atrazine. I don't think that pound of atrazine Correct. gains you very much more than a quarter pound or even a half pound would. I, I don't know what yeah. you're going to gain extra by putting a full pound out there other than you're right. going to have more round or more atrazine to deal with. Yes. more There's more residual, little more weed control, but the big thing is now you've got a lot more risk for carryover and even groundwater contamination. So yeah, we would not recommend that higher rate. I, I never recommend over half a pound. And a quarter pound, to your point, a lot of times that's enough. Yep, I agree. All right. Well, good luck, Tristan. Uh, thanks for the questions. We appreciate that. This comes from Eric, and he said, you guys answered my question about alfalfa, and I put on Eptam and planted my alfalfa. Really appreciate the help on that. Uh, he's in southeast Minnesota. He said, next up is corn. And I'm wondering, should I just spray Callisto again as a post-emerge on my corn, or is there a pre-emerge I should put down as well? Last year, I sprayed the field with Callisto. Hey, thanks for the question, Eric. And using an HPPD two years in a row all by itself is a recipe for resistant weeds popping up. We really do like using a pre-emerge in corn. It's going to buy you a lot of time before you're going to have to spray that post-emerge. Plus, you get a different mode of action out there and you can control grass and especially small seeded broadleaves early. So you have less weeds out there later, which should help you out in yield. Uh, any thoughts, Brian, or any recommendations there? Well, yeah, that's the big thing. I'd, I mean, we're just big believers in putting a pre down. But here again, I, I, I'd kind of like to know what did you miss last year? See, so you did this program. Was there anything you missed? And then we start working back from there. So if you have more information, send it to us. Yeah, thanks, Eric. We really appreciate that. And yeah, there are so many choices when it comes to corn herbicides. So yeah, for us to just jump on and say, well, this is the one you're going to have to do without knowing what your weed spectrum is and some of the other parameters is pretty tough. So hopefully that HPPD worked. I'm guessing it worked pretty well for you last year since you're thinking about using it potentially again. Well, thanks for listening to our show today. You're probably thinking, man, shelter belts. I, I don't know what we're going to talk about there, but boy, we had a lot to cover when it talks about trees and tree health. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.